Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Indoor Air Quality Radio is broadcast from coast to coast and around the world over the Internet. Today's broadcast is episode number 172, and today is Friday, June 25th, 2010. My name is Cliff Zlotnick, known as the Z-Man, Radio Joe Hughes is on a consulting assignment down south, and the intrepid environmental Annie is at the controls. Hi, Annie. Hey, Joe. Hey, Cliff. Hey, Joe. Good. Uh, today's segments include a microband trivia question, a uh, discussion on the usefulness of ultraviolet light with Dr. Ashish Matur of Ultraviolet Devices, Inc. We'll have a What's News segment with our IEQ newsman, Glenn Fellman, uh, possibly some commentary from Dr. Dieter Weil. Radio Joe and I, along with Environmental Annie and the Wingman's help, have been working on the IEQRadio.com website. We add to the website and blog every week after the show. We've also changed the invitation and news announcement from IEQ Radio and the IEQ Training Institute, and we hope that you like the new look and functionality. Now we'd like to thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon, j-o-n-d-o-n.com And our new marquee sponsor, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management who provide management best practices and in-depth cleaning solutions to help keep readers ahead of the curve and successful in their daily operations. Visit them at www.cleanfacts.com and www.cmmonline.com for more information on these invaluable resources and to subscribe. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. To contact the show by phone, you can dial... 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. Press 1 and join the show. You can download the show by going to our website, which is www.iqradio.com and follow the link that says go to the show. The show is also available from iTunes. You can obtain your IICRC continuing education credits, your ACAC renewal credits, and now ABIH credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting the quiz. 
Radio Joe's email is joe.use, and use is spelled H-U-G-H-E-S, at iqtraining.com. To make suggestions, special requests, or ask technical questions, you can either me- email Radio Joe or the Z-Man. My email is cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IQ Training Institute for the most current dates for the training you trust at iqtraining.com. It's trivia time, Andy. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com or you can text it into the show. Congratulations to Andy Krasowski from Concast Metal Products Company in Mars, Pennsylvania for answering last week's microband trivia questions by identifying Falling Water and Kentuck Knob as the two homes in western Pennsylvania designed by famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Now for the microband trivia questions for Friday, June 25, 2010. The subject matter for today's trivia questions comes from the field of optics. It's a two-part question. Uh, Name the scientist who in 1801 discovered ultraviolet light. Name the scientist who in 1801 discovered ultraviolet light. And name the physicist and inventor who is best known for giving birth to the black light effect. We're looking for the name of the physicist and inventor who is best known for giving birth to the black light effect. Okay, how about some intro music, Annie, for today's guest? Ultraviolet. Dr. Ashish Mathur serves as Director of Filtration Technologies at Ultraviolet Devices Incorporated, a leading manufacturer and supplier of ultraviolet and molecular filtration products for both air, surface, and water disinfection. Dr. Mathur has over 15 years' experience in platform technology, development, product innovation, technology transfer, manufacturing, and commercialization of products for the filtration industry. He received his doctorate and master's degrees in fiber and polymer sciences from Cornell University. His most recent position before joining UVDI was vice president of research and technology for Alstrom Filtration, a global division of the Alstrom Corporation. His knowledge of filtration media and activated carbon-based products, chemical and pregnants, particular filtration, and filtration technology facilitates UVDI's continued growth in the molecular filtration markets. Welcome to Dr. Mathur. Thank you for joining us this afternoon on IAQ Radio. Thank you. Okay. Doctor, pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure for us uh, to have you. Well, let's start with some basics. What is ultraviolet light? 
Well, if you look at the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, you know, the visible spectrum, the light which we can see is from the red to the violet. So if you go longer than the red light, then it becomes infrared. And if you go shorter than the violet, that's the ultraviolet. And typically the ultraviolet uh, range of light ranges from 100 nanometers to 400 nanometers. Okay. What are the differences between the spectrums of ultraviolet light? You know, we understand that there's an A, a B, and a C. Can you explain to the listeners the differences? Yeah, it goes from an A, B, and C, and all the way to a to a uh, to a V. But uh, basically, uh, it, you know, the, the sun emits all kinds of UV radiation in all the bands, but the Earth's atmosphere layer, like the ozone layer, is just permitting uh, about 3% of UVA through the atmosphere and the rest of it is blocked. So basically the UV spectrum is in four frequency ranges. The UVA, which you talked about, is 315 to 400 nanometers. That's the light which we use in, uh, in the tanning salons. Then the next one is UVB. Uh, that's the range is 280 to 315 nanometers. And that's the one which the doctors use for uh, treating skin diseases like the psoriasis. And I think because UVB produces vitamin D, that's why it's used. But both UV and A and B, if, uh, if you have prolonged exposure, it will create skin cancer and, and it will cause sunburns. UVC is the one which is the most interesting. Uh, for IAQA because it's considered a germicidal radiation. And the UV range is uh, 200 to 280 nanometers, where 254 is considered uh, the germicidal wavelength. Then there's also a, a wavelength called the vacuum uh, UV, that's a VUV, and that ranges between 100 to 280 nanometers. And that's the one which uh, the industry uses mostly to disinfect water, because that wavelength, I think the 185 nanometer is the one which creates ozone, and ozone helps in destroying some of the pathogens. Okay. Um, where and in what ways is ultraviolet light commonly used today? Oh, it's, uh, like I said, the UVA is, is used in the tanning salons uh, because it's, uh, it's, it's not as intense. The UVB is used for the for treating skin diseases. UVC is the one uh, which is called germicidal, and that is used to to inactivate, destroy, and kill all microorganisms. So anything which is organic, uh, UVC is going to get. So the applications it enjoys is actually in a, in a wide variety of uh, market segments. I think it mostly started for water disinfection. So this was treating municipal water, uh, rural water, drinking water, basically to, uh, and as an alternate technology uh, against chlorine. I see. And then on the air side, UV is used for air disinfection, which is like a surface disinfection. So when you're radiating a surface and you have microorganisms uh, which are sitting on the surface, so UV is going to get that. And then... Uh, disinfection of a moving airstream. So when you have bacteria and viruses flowing in the air, if you have enough dosage, then the UVC light 
You know, my wife goes to the tanning salon and gets her nails done and so on and so forth. And I know that they use some ultraviolet light for curing uh, adhesives. And I know that dentists, a lot of times in some of these dental procedures, they use ultraviolet light for, you know, curing fillings and other mouth treatments. Yeah, that's primarily UVB. UVB. Okay. Uh, UV and UVB. Uh, it's also used for curing ink. Uh, a lot of in the chemical industry, people are using UV to to cross-link polymers as an alternative and a greener form of uh, cross-linking. Okay. Um, you know, I understand there's several different brands and manufacturers of ultraviolet light products. What are the differentiating factors between different manufacturers' products? Okay, that's, you're talking about uh, manufacturers of UV systems or yeah, yeah. also the UV lamps? Well, I, I think the lamps themselves. You know, what would be the primary difference? Okay, well, not all lamps are, are the same. Uh, the main components of a UV uh, system is a lamp and a ballast. You need a ballast to drive the lamp. Uh, the lamp can be differentiated by the output it has. Uh, so there's a standard output, which is up to 425 milliamps. The high output lamps typically are between 800 and 1200 milliamps. And then the amalgam series is 1200 plus. Most of the times we are talking about standard and high output lamps. And then again, it's the type of lamp which is used that makes a difference. The ones which we use here is uh, primarily soft glass, or it's called a soda barium uh, glass. What it has is uh, it minimizes the mercury absorption on the glass surface. As you know, uh, the main component of a UV uh, irradiation is mercury. So when the mercury is irradiated, it ionizes and generates the UV radiation. So the soda, uh, soda barium glass minimizes this mercury absorption. So, and then it, uh, depending on the coating you have on the glass, all you get is the 254 nanometers, which is a UVC wavelength coming out of the lamp. The other lamp is a quartz lamp, and uh, the quartz lamp typically absorbs mercury much faster, uh, and it kind of builds up on the surface of the lamp, so the output of the UV energy is lower. Uh, so you... So uh, manufacturers would typically add more mercury into the lamp to compensate for this mercury loss and, and, less, and loss in radiation. The other thing which happens is the, a quartz lamp will give out 185 nanometers as well, which kind of leads to some ozone uh, production. And so, then there are differences in the ballast. The, in the olden days, people were primarily using magnetic ballast, which were uh, not they were high manufacturing, there was a low power factor, and they were not really energy star compliant. Most recently, people are now using electronic ballasts, which are smaller, lighter, and, uh, of course, uh, with a higher power factor. In terms of manufacturers, uh, it's all in the application. Uh, some manufacturers uh, use the approach of having a maximum output of a lamp, so if you have the highest possible energy which you can get out of the lamp, that's the best for the application. What we do is we recommend a, an optimal value of irradiation which is required. You don't want to unnecessarily spend energy uh, if you don't need that much UV radiation to fill a specific pathogen. 
for example, viruses and bacteria are easier to kill than mold and funguses. Okay. okay. Is that clear? Oh, that's that, that's that's very clear. Thank you. Um, you you had mentioned that in with uh, some of the glass that you know would be. I guess on the outside of the bulbs, that there are different types of glass and that there are different types of coating. So do I understand correctly that the production of ozone is variable, that as the manufacturer you can kind of make make a bulb that produces a lot of ozone or make one that would produce no ozone or make make them in the middle depending on what the customer wants. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, good. That's correct. Uh, Yeah. If you're looking at only germicidal irradiation, you would want the maximum uh, dosage of the UVC light, which is a 254 nanometer wavelength. If you want to add some uh, ozone generation generating qualities, then you need to have a lamp which will also bring out 185 nanometer, which is more in the in the vacuum range. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and uh, people would uh, accordingly coat the inside of the lamp so that you can protect one one form of wavelength and emit the other one. I see. How does ultraviolet light purify water? Oh, it, uh, basically, ultraviolet light is, uh, does, not, it does not see whether it's an air or water. Basically, it's a radiation which is coming out. And the, again, the radiation which is used primarily is the UVC or the UVGI is called germicidal irradiation. Uh, UVC attacks the DNA of the microbes. So if you take any microorganism, uh, UVC would get into the DNA and break down the molecular chain and make the pathogen inactive. So it's uh, it's a disinfection system by basically breaking down all the pathogens and the microbes uh, which are present in the water. Well, let's People are also using the UVA, which we talked about. Uh, sorry, the vacuum UV, which is the 185 nanometers, which generates ozone, and ozone also helps break down some of the VOCs, which are present. You know, going back to the water, um, when ultraviolet purifies water, does the water have to be still moving, or can the water be flowing while it's being purified? Yeah, it's all in the contact time. Uh, preferably, the water is uh, is is uh, static and it's not moving. But depending on the output of the lamps, uh, you would accordingly size the system where you can have it in a in a continuous system, uh, in a continuous moving water system as well by using high output lamps. Okay, uh, you know, in, in purification of water, is it a process that is virtually instantaneous or does it take, um, you know, seconds or, or minutes or hours for it to work? Yeah, it's, it's all about dosage. Uh, dosage is intensity times time. So depending on the pathogen you're, you're trying to remove, if it's Giardia or if it's uh, E. coli, uh, you would accordingly use the right uh, dosage which would be required to completely break it down. And you're not talking about a significant amount of time. Uh, typically, these viruses and bacteria are the easiest to break down. So, yeah, the time which you use to irradiate the surface is, is based on the, the dosage and, and the passage. 
I have a, a, a text question that was texted in, and I think that what I'll probably do is, I think my next question is probably going to answer it. If not, they can retext me in. I think that you've commented that ultraviolet light is antimicrobial and that it um, affects the DNA uh, of the organisms. Why are some types of microorganisms more susceptible to ultraviolet light than others? Okay. That's a good question. Uh, it, it, uh, in, in your trivia question this morning, you talked about uh, someone discovered that UVC uh, was perfect for uh, to destroy the pathogen. And I think it was a Danish scientist who discovered that there's a perfect match between the DNA absorption and the UVC radiation. So DNA absorbs uh, radiation between a 230 to 290 nanometers, and UVC is right in that range. So that's why it's, it's a perfect match to, to break down the, the, the DNA of the organism. Now, each organism is different because the, the difference comes from the, the size of the organism. Uh, we call it the aspect ratio, or the length to the diameter ratio, the cell wall thickness and the, complete, the complexity of the DNA structure. So if it's a much longer uh, complex molecule, it will take a bit longer to break down. For example, fungal uh, and spores, they have a very complicated and thick cell wall, so it takes longer for the UVC to penetrate. So hence you have different dosage times which are recommended for the different forms of pathogens. Like I said before, the viruses, the vegetative bacteria are the easiest to get. The fungal spores are, are, the, are the hardest to get. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, ultraviolet systems in heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Uh, can you tell the listeners where and in what ways ultraviolet is useful in, a, in an HVAC system? Yeah, if you look in an HVAC system, it's, uh, it's a perfect breeding ground for microbiological growth uh, due to the cooling coils, which are used to remove the heat and and uh, and in the function, they produce the con condensate. And this condensate forms in the coils uh, and also connects in the brain pans in, in the cooling coils, which leads to uh, like a bio biofilm or a bioslime formation on the coil and inside the coil. And this biofilm is basically mold and bacteria. As, as you know, that mold can grow in um, humidities as low as 30%. So it's a perfect breeding ground for, for that growth. So that leads to two problems uh, on the coil. One is the performance degradation. So as the, the mold is building up on the coil, you have a restriction to the airflow, which of course would result to uh, lower heat transfer and ultimately higher energy and, and maintenance costs. The second aspect is the indoor air quality. So one is performance and the other is air quality. Okay, when the HVC unit is, is operating, air is moving through the system and carrying these uh, these mold particles and bioaerosols into into your home. So that's where UV enjoys the most uh, benefit. If you have a UVC system irradiating the coil and destroying the mold and bacterial growth, which is there, it not only enhances the performance of your heating and ventilating system, but it also improves the indoor air quality. Um, so we're talking about two, two, uh, two main functions. One is a coil irradiation, 
and the other one is also uh, cleaning the moving air which is getting into the uh, into the house the ultraviolet systems when they're installed in ductwork you know metal ductwork is not does not visibly seem to be shiny therefore most people would think that it's not reflective does the surface need for ultraviolet to work does the, do the surfaces have to be able to reflect it uh, not necessarily. Uh, UV fields only directly attack the micro microorganisms, but if you have a reflective surface, it will definitely enhance the amount of overall dosage which is uh, getting on these uh, microorganisms. For example, if you have a reflective surface, so the, the surface is not so porous. So when it's not so porous, you don't have uh, the, or the chance of a buildup of these microorganisms in, in the cracks or in the pores is, is less. So that's another benefit. So if you have a reflective surface, uh, most uh, depending on the reflectivity of the surface, a uh, portion of the UVC light is going to be reflected back and could be concentrated more into the area where you really want it to be concentrated on. I'm going to give you a visual example, I think, for the listeners. You know, probably everyone that's listening and, and you, doctor, and, and, and myself and Annie, certainly at home have a roll of aluminum foil. And when you look at that roll of aluminum foil, you know, one side is very, very shiny and, you know, very reflective, almost like a mirror. And the opposite side is... Uh, I would say, you know, more flat, uh, not anywhere near as shiny or reflective. Which one of those would be preferable uh, as a reflective surface if you were trying to kill microorganisms inside of ductwork? Yeah, I can tell you some. I have some data on the aluminum. You have the untreated aluminum as well as uh, treated aluminum, and sometimes there's also some uh, spotter coating which is applied on the aluminum. There's also aluminum paint which is used. And all of them have a fairly high reflectivity. To look at the reflectivity of all the metals, aluminum is actually the highest. A treated aluminum like the reflective or the shiny one you're talking about has a reflectivity of 75 to 80 percent, which is uh, really high. And there are some coatings which are put on which can take it up all the way up to 90 percent. Hmm. And if you look at uh, Stainless steel, for example, you would think that stainless steel is also fairly reflective, but it's not. It's, uh, it's actually in the 25 to 30 percent reflectivity. Thank the you. Galvanized, uh, the galvanized steel is somewhere in the middle. By in the middle, around 50 or something like that? Yeah, it's about 55. Okay. All right. Um, when you're installing ultraviolet light systems inside of a heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system, you know, particularly around coils, you know, commonly those coils are going to be clean with detergent uh, and water. Do the bulbs have to be removed? Is there any safety precautions that have to occur in order for wet cleaning, water-based or aqueous cleaning, to be done uh, adjacent um, your systems? Actually, the, you would not need to use as many chemicals anymore if you have a UVC system uh, installed on the coil. 
that is the whole idea. You need a clean uh, system which is greener and more effective than the cleaning detergents which have been typically used for cleaning the coils. What happens is, uh, and there's been a lot of talk about biofilms, when, when people talk about buildup of these uh, bacterial colonies on the coil and they go through a cleaning detergent cycle, so they clean it and they do some steam cleaning and it cleans the coil. But as uh, biologists will tell you that these bacterial colonies reform almost instantly or very rapidly. So you clean it one day and the next day you come in and, and the film is back. So the whole idea of UV is to, to reduce and possibly eliminate the need for for cleaning these coils. And uh, regarding cleaning of equipment around the coils, uh, UVC, uh, of course, we have to be careful on what equi what equipment is uh, is in direct exposure to the coil because there are some materials which will degrade when UV is exposed on them. Uh, the as as Regarding the buildup on the bulb itself, if it's organic, then of course UVC is going to break it down. If it's dust, then then it just needs to be wiped down. But typically, uh, UVC is a very uh, low uh, maintenance uh, technology which is used, and the whole idea is to reduce the the use of clean chemicals in that facility. Okay. Well, Doctor, please hang on the line. We're going to go now to our halftime and uh, we'll bring in our halftime newsman. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor, software technology, and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings, Dries' first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, joining us with is our leader of men from Indoor Environment Connections, Glenn Fellman. Good afternoon, Glenn. Thanks for joining us. 
Good afternoon. Thanks for having me, Cliff. Uh, what's I news? I got some, uh, some big news this week. Big news. Uh, for all those uh, out there who are affected by the EE, uh, EPA's RRP rule, don't get me acronym, please. I'm going <laughs> to talk about it. <laughs> the uh, renovation, repair, and painting rule, the RRP rule, you know, that became effective on April 22, 2010, and it had uh, far-reaching implications for any contractors who were performing uh, restoration work or any type of destructive work on homes built before 1978. Well, EPA seems to have conceded defeat on implementing this rule, at least in the short term. Earlier this year, the agency announced that uh, it would be enforced uh, in, in place as uh, announced on April 22nd. The National Association of Home Builders and others lodged a, a vigorous protest saying that the government hadn't given contractors enough time to get up to speed. In fact, the United States Senate voted on May 27th to delay the implementation of the lead rule to give contractors more time. Well, in response to all this, the agency announced uh, April 21st, uh, although actually there's a memo on, I have on, on June 18th, but they announced on June 21st that it will not take enforcement action until later this year. Specifically, uh, Cynthia Giles, the Assistant Administrator for the Office of Enforcement and Compliance, wrote to her Enforcement Division Directors, and she said that until October 1st, 2010, EPA will not take enforcement action for violations of the RRP's rule uh, for, for firm certification requirements. In other words, for the certification requirements of companies. And then in a separate uh, uh, announcement, she said, for violations of the RRP rules renovation worker certification requirement, EPA will not enforce against individual renovation workers if the person has applied to enroll in or, or has enrolled in before September 30th a certified renovator class to train contractors in the practices necessary for compliance with the final rules. Renovators must complete the training by December 31st, 2010. So for all those uh, listeners out there who have not satisfied the RRP rule requirements, you've got a little more breathing space. Uh, the good news is that there are more and more accredited training providers coming online uh, every week. Uh, if you go to the National Center for Healthy Housing website, that's nchh.org. You can probably they have, I think, the most comprehensive list of EPA-accredited training providers for the RRP rules. So that's story number one, and it's uh, big news, and I think good news for the contractors out there. Um, uh, some people would say it's bad news for children uh, who need to be protected against lead poisoning. But in any event, that's the news on that one. Uh, second story I have for you today is uh, regarding ASHRAE. Uh, ASHRAE has issued a new uh, or revised version of its residential IAQ standard. Uh, changes to make requirements easier to use in home retrofits are covered in the newly published 2010 version of ASHRAE standard 62.2-2010. That's also known as ventilation and acceptable indoor air quality in low-rise residential buildings. Uh, and it's the only nationally recognized indoor air quality standard developed solely for residences. It defines the roles and uh, minimum requirements for mechanical and natural ventilation systems and the building envelope intended to provide acceptable indoor air quality to low-rise residential buildings. The 2010 standard encourages home retrofits to improve IAQ through the allowance of alternative methods for meeting the standards requirements regarding kitchen 
and bathroom exhaust fans. The standard currently requires fans in those rooms. Uh, the uh, chairman of the committee for the standard said this change makes the standard much easier to use in home retrofits, which is very important considering massive federal and state government efforts in this area. Uh, he said, for example, installation of new equipment in some existing homes can be a barrier in terms of expense and practicality. Under the alternate compliance path in the new standard, the overall whole house ventilation rate can be increased to compensate for insufficient or non-existent bathroom exhaust. Um, I'm just going to put in a personal comment here that uh, I find a little bit of irony in uh, a newly revised IAQ standard that allows for a home not to have bathroom exhaust. But, yeah, that's just my aside. I agree with you. Uh, next on the list, uh, and this is kind of interesting, too. You know, you hear these days, uh, they used to say mold is gold, and now they say mold is old. Well, I don't know about that. Uh, just this week, it was announced that a Pittsburgh, New York couple has won a lawsuit against their home builder. Uh, a Monroe County Supreme Court jury this week awarded $187,000, including interest, to Neil and Patty Goldstein of Pittsburgh, Pittsford, for the mold infestation in their Settler's Green Development home. The court found Spall Realty and Brookwood Building Corp. were liable for the damages due to several destruction, construction defects proven at the trial that made their basement wet and promoted mold growth. The monetary award was broken down into more than 32000 to pay for the cost of replacing the molded structures in the home and personal property that had been destroyed because of the mold. And in addition, the Goldsteins received uh, $12,500 each for pain and suffering. So uh, for those out there who say that, uh, you know, the mold thing is dwindling, uh, it's still, it's still, uh, the lawyers are still getting rich off of it, that's for sure. All right, uh, I got one more for you if, if you're interested in it. Sure, please. All right, uh, I found this one kind of interesting. I wanted to put it out there. Uh, we hear a lot about ventilation cleaning. We just talked a, a little bit with, with with our guest about the role of of UV and and uh, keeping ventilation systems clean. But you got to be careful with the with who you deal with out there. Uh, in Cook County, Chicago, the state attorney has filed a lawsuit against the local air duct cleaning business. Uh, it's a consumer fraud lawsuit against a Northwest, Northwest Suburban company that cleans furnaces and air ducts, charging that the company had deceived and overcharged consumers for work that was never completed. The lawsuit alleges that the owners and operators of American Pure Air, Inc. of Arlington Heights not only overcharged consumers for the work that was not completed, but in some cases intimidated consumers for payment, violating provisions of the Illinois Consumer Fraud and Deceptive Business Practices Act. The lawsuit was filed late Tuesday against American Prayer Inc. and its owners and operators, uh, Galley Army and Barack uh, Schnittman. According to the lawsuit, American Prayer would misrepresent to consumers that their ductwork or furnace was contaminated with mold, fungus, dust mites, or bacteria, and that these contaminants posed an immediate health risk. Uh, they would then sell additional products and services to eliminate or control the purported contaminants and charge homeowners significant additional monies for sanitizers, furnace cleanings, or, quote, germicidal ultraviolet lights. And uh, in a statement, the uh, Attorney General, uh, Anita Alvarez, said, it's an outrage that consumers seeking honest services to help clean the air within their homes have been subjected to this type of fraud. On behalf of the consumers who have been victimized by this company, we intend to seek full restitution. Uh, 
so I thought that was kind of an interesting one. Uh, keep it honest, folks. Uh, and I thought it would be interesting to close with that one in that they did talk a little bit about germicidal ultraviolet lights, and we just uh, had our guests talk about it. And I'm going to throw a question out in that direction and, and end the news with it, which is uh, I hear a lot of debate about the effectiveness of UV lights in in ductwork itself. Uh, I think there's, there's pretty broad recognition that UV lights um, can do uh, significant work in combating bacterial and, and fungal problems on coils and other areas where they're uh, facing a, a static surface. But I've heard debate as to whether uh, UV lights installed within ducts can have an effect on the air that's passing through that duct uh, at considerable speed. So that's going to close with as a question that maybe you can bring into the second half of the show. Oh, no, I think we'll just let the doctor answer it right now. Doctor, can you comment or answer Glenn's question? That's a great question, uh, Glenn. Uh, like you said, when, you, when you're radiating a coil, you have all the time in the world because you have uh, and the air is not moving or the, the coil is static and you're actually radiating a surface. It's a static surface. It's a static treatment. When you talk about disinfecting the air as it's moving, then when you know that the contact time which, which the lamp has with the moving air is uh, is much, much lower than what you would have with the surface irradiation. So you have to size it accordingly, uh, depending on the size of the duct. Typically, uh, people would, we would advise uh, high output lamps uh, and, uh, and a whole array of them to achieve a certain amount of efficiency. It's like a particulate filter. So when you have a particulate filter in your house, you can choose between a filter which has 50% efficiency and all the way up to a 99.99 or a HEPA, HEPA filter, depending on what you're comfortable with, what your uh, personal situation is in terms of health and allergies. So there's a whole gamut of efficiency ratings, filters of efficiency ratings which are used in the industry. You can treat the moving air disinfection in the same context, depending on... So if you're talking about an influenza A virus which, which you want to protect against yourself, against... Uh, you would install a, a UV system to disinfect this moving airstream, and then you have to be, then you have to decide. Okay, should I go with a 50% efficiency or a 99.97% efficiency for for efficiency of removal? Of course, you, if you want the highest efficiency, then the amount of lamps you would need is going to be very high. You have to be able to uh, position it in in the right manner in the ductwork. But yes, uh, theoretically. It, it is practical to disinfect moving air. Uh, definitely it takes longer because the contact time is less. Uh, and the main thing is that you have to size it based on what what specific pathogen you're, you're trying to, to deal with. If it's influenza A or is it hepatitis or if it is swine flu or is it a bacteria or is it E. coli, the dosage required is different. So you want to have an optimal uh, UV radiation, uh, not less, not not too much high. Okay, doctor. And, and looking at your company's website, I was very excited about your portable room sanitizer. And uh, I just have a bunch of questions, uh, uh, you know, to ask you about that. I'd like to know how it works. I, I'd like to know how long it takes for it to work. I'd like to know. Uh, you know, how much the system costs. Uh, you know, could you kind of 
answer those questions about. Yeah, we're also very excited about this uh, this product. Uh, unfortunately, it, it hasn't moved as fast as we would like because it's such a neat technology, and it is uh, obviously when you when you talk about uh, hospitals and clinics and schools where you have uh, enormous amount of uh, bacteria and germs all around and on countertops, uh, you you need a very effective disinfection technique. Uh, like as you know, in hospitals, people use very uh, different forms of disinfection. People use all the way from alcohol saturated wipes, disinfecting wipes, to some kind of a sterilization technique, uh, ethylene oxide vaporizers, which would go and uh, introduce vapors into the whole room and sterilize the area. What we have is, of course, we, we use the UV GI irradiation, like, like in the air and the coil irradiation. So basically, it's it's a high-output UV lamp, which is in this device, and it's uh, constructed in such a way that you have a 360 degrees irradiation around it. The intensity is, uh, can be controlled based on the output of the lamp. The range, uh, what, we, what we've calculated and have tested with the certified lab is that you can basically disinfect a 35 by 35 foot room in less than 10 minutes. With this, uh, with this uh, room sanitizer. Hmm. And what sort of organisms uh, would you be able to disinfect against? Uh, you know, would it work on uh, uh, tuberculosis? Yes, uh, basically it's the same, same, same principle as any UVGI uh, uh, technology or any UVGI lamp. Basically, it's going to go after all the microorganisms. Some organisms, uh, like tuberculosis, is going to take a different dosage. And uh, influenza A, uh, for example, will take two times the amount of dosage as, as a tuberculosis. If you talk about uh, a staph bacteria, it's, it's actually one-third the amount of dosage required to, to get rid of that. So it's, it's effective. It's very effective in, um, against virus and bacteria, like I said before. But if you have fungal and... Uh, uh, mold and spores in the area, then of course it's going to take much longer. What we've got tested is that uh, within a 17-foot uh, range, you can basically disinfect these viruses and bacteria I just talked about within five minutes. And how often would you recommend that this is used? Would you recommend that they, you know, use it every day? Would you recommend that they use it periodically? I mean, any recommendations yeah, on that? Yeah, we recommend that this should be part of your daily cleaning cycle. Again, it uh, depends on the application. If you're using it in a hospital, uh, surely uh, it should be once once a day. Uh, you have to make sure that the patients are either fully covered or the patients are outside the room when UVC is, is being used. And, uh, and the idea is to disinfect all the surfaces which are, uh, which are a source of of growth of these uh, microorganisms and pathogens. In schools, uh, depending on, again, on the cleaning cycle, uh, we recommend the same thing. It should be once a day. Uh, and, and the beauty of the unit is that it's a portable unit. It's a lightweight unit. You can move it from one room to the other. And within uh, five to ten minutes, you can have basically uh, clean up a whole, uh, whole room and you move to the other room and you keep going. 
you know, a worker needs to set this up, you know, take it into the room and, and set it up. Does that worker need to be protected? Do they need to protect their eyes from ultraviolet light? Do they need to protect their skin from burns? Or how do you uh, engineer around uh, the need or recommendation for personal protective equipment for people that are using the system? Of course, I mean, we know that UVGI, especially compared to UV and UVB, is, is more intense and it will burn your skin. So you have to wear, wear your gloves and protective clothing and eye, go, eye goggles. But what we recommend is that when you turn the unit on, you, you need to be outside the room. So you, so the we don't recommend anyone to be in the room when UVGI is on, the, when, the, when the unit is on. Uh, we, there are safety signs, there are motion sensors on the unit that whenever there's, there's a motion in, in, the, in the area, the, the unit will shut off automatically. And uh, regarding the, the cleanliness, you don't really have to do any, any prep work, really. Uh, if there's any plastic wear which might get degraded by the UVC, you need to protect that by, by a plastic uh, tarp or something. But yeah, the, the safety is... It's very important, and they have we we give signs with the units. They have to be put all over the uh, irradiating zone. Uh, they have, and of course the the motion sensor help a help a long way into protecting the people who are operating it. You know, we have a lot of remediators. Uh, you know, folks that go in after disasters, fires, and floods. Uh, a lot, we have a lot of people that work in homes. How much would one of the portable room sanitizers cost? And do you have different sizes of them, or is there just one size? We typically uh, make only one size uh, because the idea is to have a unit which will be effective on a eight-foot-high wall. So you've got to have a unit which has a high output lamp, which has a certain height, which will be able to grab not just the counter surfaces, but also the walls. There may be some other units which are smaller, lightweight, which you can uh, which you can carry and irradiate a smaller zone. So the unit which we have is really targeting uh, hospital rooms, school or school uh, buildings, uh, not so much small confined areas like buses or ambulances. What would the what would the cost be for one of these units? The unit which we sell is uh, is, is under ten thousand dollars. Okay. And uh, there are some units which are out there which which have more features, uh, more interface and computerized controls. But the technology of uh, irradiation is still the same. You need a certain dosage to mitigate the, the pathogens. So the the unit which we have is. Is effective in, in killing it, and it's under 10,000. Okay. Um, a couple other questions come to mind. You know, one of the big debates in, in the use of chemicals, in, you know, for disinfection uh, is that uh, I think there's two schools of thought. One school of thought is that uh, microorganisms are getting resistant to antimicrobial agents. And I don't know that I believe that, but there are certain people that do. The question is, do microorganisms get resistant to ultraviolet light? Could you comment on that? No, they, they can't. I think it's part of nature's way. Uh, I think I started the, the discussion by saying that 
the the sun has always emitted UVA, B and C, and it's just for it's just fortunate that the atmospheric layer prevents the UVC in reaching the Earth. So the microorganisms on the Earth haven't had time to evolve and prepare defense mechanisms against UVC. And from a chemical standpoint or from a scientific standpoint, the main thing is that the DNA molecule or the nucleic acid which forms the DNA of this molecule absorbs the UV light in this spectrum, in this 250, 230 to 290 nanometers. So it's not like a chemical protective layer that is not going to be effective against a, a, a wavelength. So the wavelength will get to it. They might be able to develop cell walls and thicknesses which might need a higher dosage to break them down. But from what we've calculated, we have a, uh, we have a software tool. And there have been a lot of studies in, um, in calculating what is the K factor or, or the and the K factor is basically distinguishing one molecule from the other. Uh, so the software model will tell you what are the doses required to to kill a molecule which now has this kind of a K factor, which is based on the cell wall thickness, the aspect ratio. Right, yeah. So yeah, that's why I said it was a perfect uh, marriage of the DNA and the UVC. Okay, sounds like a lock and key. One one fits right into the other. If you that's uh, correct, yeah. if you can indulge, and I don't do that. Uh, this famous scientist, I forget his name, I think it was Fiskin, he, he got a Nobel Prize uh, of medicine for his discovery that when he, when he made this artificial sun, they called it the UVC light. So he, he was the first person who figured out that UVC and pathogens are a perfect for each other. And he got a Nobel Prize for it. Perfect. Doctor, please indulge us and, and hold on. We go into where, what our roundup is, and what we'll do is uh, we'll bring our guest uh, or we'll bring our newsman back, uh, Doctor Glenn Fellman. We're going to bring in Doctor Weil, and uh, we're going to uh, just each ask another question to kind of round things out. I think we'll bring in Doctor Weil first. Uh, How are you this afternoon, Dieter? Yeah, hi. Glad to hear some little bit of uh, Beethoven over there. Uh, Dr. Maturm's uh, 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 comments uh, took me back some 55 years when I learned about optics in, uh, in Germany. And uh, I had fortunately a professor who had been a scientist with the Zeiss company in Germany for many, many years. Uh, you know, optics inside out. Uh, if we have time, we go back to that. And in fact, I worked around with an ultra microscope, which uses UV light, which makes things uh, uh, a little bit easier. You have almost a monochromatic light, and you don't have um, these color aberrations. And um, the only problem is all the lenses, all the objectives that were there, 
<laughs> they were made out of, and I only know that in German, crone glass and flint glass. There's only one problem with it. They were beautiful lenses, but they don't let ultraviolet through. <laughs> so that that is pretty bad. So we had, uh, there, there were quartz lenses uh, designed, and uh, they worked very nicely on that. But I have a, a, a question for my friends. When they, yeah, we decided in, uh, in this society and also in Europe that if you have a suntan, you look healthy. And if somebody, I tell them, said, don't go on the beach because I have a friend who is a plastic surgeon. He makes a lot of money <laughs> taking care of people who looked very healthy 30 years ago. And uh, they are in his uh, hospital and his practice all the time. So that UVA that makes you brown and is better for you and doesn't damage uh, the cells, the human cells now. Is that right? Yeah, the UVA wavelength is between 320 and 400 nanometers. So it's, I, it's outside the uh, absorption spectrum for the DNA molecule. Oh, okay. So, so if you go to a tanning uh, uh, or a tanning um, uh, place, um, what should you look for to be, yeah, get a suntan and be safe? Yeah, you have or to make it, sure that the lamps they're using are UVA lamps, and uh, but I saw that they have certification that, like I said before in, in the earlier part of the discussion, that there are some uh, lamp manufacturers who don't apply the right coating. Yep. So you have more than one wavelength coming through. That's what I believe, too. That's what I would have expected, yes. Right, so and, and we've seen that when we talk about, say, UVC and the 185, which is the vacuum UV, but we haven't seen too much of uh, issues in people making tanning lamps which would go into the 254 nanometer range. And uh, thank you very much, going. Uh, or, or talking in nanometers. I would know what a nanometer is, and I always forget what a damn angstrom is. Nothing against Mr. Angstrom. But one angstrom is 10 nanometers, so that's it. It's 10? Oh, days? I thought it was 9. No, no, no. One nanometer is 10 to the power of minus 10. Oh, okay. Um, well, that, that makes... Uh, I, 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 I like the metric system, so that is okay. Okay, it's the other way around. One nanometer is 10 angstrom. Okay. I thought it was 9 for some strange reason. I looked that up. But uh, nano is 10 to the power of minus 9, and angstrom is 10 to the power oh, of okay. minus That's 10. where the 9 comes from. I like, I like nanometers and micrometers, and I know what I'm doing. Yeah, <laughs> coming from Europe, you think metrics, right? <laughs> uh, absolutely. absolutely. I, have a, I have a follow-up question, but not on, not on nano, uh, nano anything. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, no, relating to, to, to follow up on Dieter's question, I've heard of of, uh, of of instances where uh workers especially when you, when UV systems first started to become popular where workers were unaware that they were working around UV lighting systems in in mechanical rooms or in, in mechanical systems and so they didn't protect their eyes and suddenly they found out a little later that that was a big problem uh my question for the guests as a follow up or for the roundup here would be you know, what would you advise people in terms of, of worker safety and also uh, occupant or user safety in terms of being able to identify these things or, or, or notices that might be posted near them that would identify that, you know, there's a hazard to the eyes if uh, you, know, you stare at these lights for a period of time? 
the way we the rank the way we recommend this is that so so when we sell systems for quality radiation, the fixtures in the units we sell, you won't be able to access it unless you open a door. And as soon as you open a door, there's an interlock switch which basically turns the lamps off. So you have to build safety into your system. That's a good idea, yes. And the same thing applies to our mobile room sanitizer or the portable unit. It has a motion sensor. As soon as it detects a motion in, in the range, it will shut off automatically. So it has to be built in. You can put as many signs as you can outside the door. Uh, but we we recommend, and it's part of our safety protocol and the instructions we give to our clients that, okay, we set it set up the unit, you have enough time for the unit to start up so that you can leave the room when the unit is on. Uh, and if someone needs to be in the room, you have to be adequately gloved and uh, you've got to have the eyewear, protective eyewear and, and everything. If you would know that uh, they are in hospitals and in some surgeries, people are using UVC light for, for a knee and hip replacement. So what they do is they focus this, uh, the UVC light onto the wound which will, of course, sterilize the disinfect the wound and and limit the amount of infections which are uh, spreading in the room. So in that case, all the surgeons and doctors are adequately gloved and they're wearing the, the glasses and the safety equipment. So it's all about instructions and engineering safety into your into your system. That's the only way. And part of the challenge for UV acceptance has been this, that people have been scared that they'll get burnt. Now, they have, of course, if you have prolonged exposures, you would have uh, skin cancer and stuff. So that's one of the reasons why it's taken so long for it to get accepted now. Right. And it's only recently when ASHRAE has uh, adopted it into the handbook. Uh, this was in 2008, and the position paper which came out only uh, on UV as an effective technology against airborne infection, infectious diseases that came out just last year, and the EPA study which came out a few years ago. That's all helping now. That if it's used in the right way, then it's a very powerful technique to to get after these bugs and pathogens. Well, I'm glad to hear that because uh, I teach classes with Joe, and. Uh, I can answer several questions from the students now a lot better than I could an hour ago. Yeah, you can get my information. You can feel free to, to contact us if you have any more technical questions. And we will ask you how to get in touch with you. I don't think it's on the website, uh, on our advertisement, no. You just go to www.uvdi.com. That was U UVI? UVDI. Okay. Uniform Victor Delta India dot com. Very good. Very good. All right. All right, Doctor Matur, is there anything that you'd like to add uh, before we close your interview today? Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for IQA to to use uh, the uh, UV as a topic because. Uh, like I said before, it's, it's taken a long time for UV technology to be accepted in the IEQ world. I think it was in 1903 when it was used in Marseille, France, on, in Paris uh, for water disinfection. 
and uh, it's enjoyed a lot of applications in, in water disinfection, and it's only recently in the past five years where it's been recognized as, as an effective technology for uh, IAQA. And uh, yeah, thanks to the organization and their efforts in, in uh, introducing new technologies which, which are relevant, not just for energy saving, but also for uh, improving the indoor air quality. All right. Okay? Thank you very much, Doctor, for joining us. Before we sign off, I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Ashish Mathur, my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, environmental Ann Koalecki, the wingman, Chris Boisel, the IEQ newsman, Glenn Thelman, our cleaning and restoration newsmen, Michael Ogburn and Jeff Cross, our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, and most importantly, you, our growing group of listeners. Please come back and join us for our next broadcast of IEQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 